0: Chapter 20 of Marius the Epicurean, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marius the Epicurean, Volume 2, by Walter Pater. Chapter 20 Two Curious Houses. One Guests Your Old Men Shall Dream Dreams. A nature like that of Marius, composed in about equal parts of instincts almost physical, and of slowly accumulated intellectual judgments, was perhaps even less susceptible than other men's characters of essential change. And yet the experience of that fortunate hour, seeming gather into one central act of vision all the deeper impressions his mind had ever received, did not leave him quite as he had been. For his mental view, at least it changed measurably the world about him, of which he was still indeed a curious spectator, but which looked further off, was weaker in its hold, and in a sense less real to him than ever. It was as if he viewed it through a diminishing glass. And the permanency of this change he could note some years later, when it happened that he was a guest at a feast in which the various exciting elements of Roman life, its physical and intellectual accomplishments, its frivolity and far-fetched elegances, its strange mystic essays after the unseen, were elaborately combined. The great Apuleius, the literary ideal of his boyhood, had arrived in Rome, was now visiting Tusculum, at the house of their common friend, a certain aristocratic poet who loved every sort of superiorities, and Marius was favoured with an invitation to a supper given in his honour. It was with a feeling of half-humorous concession to his own early boyish hero-worship yet with some sense of superiority in himself seeing his old curiosity grown now almost to indifference when on the point of satisfaction at last and upon a juster estimate of its object that he mounted to the little town on the hillside the footways of which were so many flights of easy-going steps gathered round a single great house under the shadow of the haunted ruins of Cicero's villa on the wooded heights. He found a touch of weirdness in the circumstance, that in so romantic a place he had been bidden to meet the writer who was come to seem almost like one of the personages in his own fiction. As he turned now and then to gaze at the evening scene through the tall, narrow openings of the street, up which the cattle were going home slowly from the pastures below, The Alban Mountains stretched between the great walls of the ancient houses seemed close at hand, a screen of vaporous dun purple against the setting sun, with those waves of surpassing softness in the boundary lines which indicate volcanic formation. The coolness of the little brown market-place, for profit of which even the working people in long file through the olive gardens were leaving the plain for the night, was grateful after the heats of Rome those wild country figures, clad in every kind of fantastic patchwork, stained by wind and weather, fortunately enough for the eye, under that significant light, inclined him to poetry. And it was a very delicate poetry of its kind that seemed to enfold him. As passing into the poet's house he paused for a moment to glance back toward the heights above, whereupon the numerous cascades of the precipitous garden of the villa, framed in the doorway of the hall, fell into a harmless picture, in its place among the pictures within, and scarcely more real than they, a landscape piece, in which the power of water, plunging into what unseen depths, done to the life, was pleasant, and without its natural terrors. At the further end of this bland apartment, fragrant with the rare woods of the old inlaid panelling, the falling of aromatic oil from the ready-lighted lamps, the irish root clinging to the dresses of the guests as with odors from the altars of the gods, the supper-table was spread in all the daintiness characteristic of the agreeable petit maitre, who entertained. He was already most carefully dressed, but like Marshal Stella, perhaps consciously meant to change his attire once and again during the banquet. In the last instance for an ancient vesture, object of much rivalry among the young men of fashion at that great sale of the imperial wardrobes a toga of altogether lost hue and texture he wore it with a grace which became the leader of a thrilling movement then on foot for the restoration of that disused garment in which laying aside the customary evening dress all the visitors were requested to appear setting off the delicate sinuosities and well-disposed golden ways of its folds with harmoniously tinted flowers the opulent sunset, blending pleasantly with artificial light, fell across the quiet ancestral effigies of old consular dignitaries along the wide floor strewn with sawdust of sandalwood, and lost itself in the heap of cool coronals, lying ready for the foreheads of the guest on a sideboard of old citron. The crystal vessels darkened with old wine, the hues of early autumn fruit, mulberries pomegranates and grapes that had long been hanging under careful protection upon the vines were almost as much a feast for the eye as the dusky fires of the rare twelve-petalled roses a favourite animal white as snow brought by one of the visitors purred its way gracefully among the wine-cups coaxed onward from place to place by those at table as they reclined easily on their cushions of german eater-down spread over the long-legged carved couches a highly refined modification of the Ecarama, a musical performance during supper for the diversion of the guests, was presently heard hovering round the place soothingly, and so unobtrusively that the company could not guess, and did not like to ask, whether or not it had been designed by their entertainer. They inclined on the whole to think it some wonderful peasant music peculiar to that wild neighborhood, turning as it did now and then to a solitary reed note like a bird's, while it wandered into the distance. It wandered quite away at last, as darkness with a bolder lamplight came on and made way for another sort of entertainment. An odd, rapid phantasmal glitter, advancing from the garden by torchlight, defined itself as it came nearer, into a dance of young men in armor. Arrived at length in a portico, open to the supper-chamber, They contrived that their mechanical march movements should fall out into a kind of highly expressive dramatic action, and with the utmost possible emphasis of dumb motion, their long swords weaving a silvery network in the air, they danced the death of Paris. The young Commodus, already an adept in these matters who had condescended to welcome the eminent Apuleius at the banquet, had mysteriously dropped from his place to take his share in the performance and at its conclusion reappeared still wearing the dainty accoutrements of Paris, including a breastplate composed entirely of overlapping tiger's claws, skilfully gilt. The youthful prince had lately assumed the dress of manhood, on the return of the emperor for a brief visit from the north, putting up his hair in imitation of Nero, in a golden box dedicated to Capitoline Jupiter. His likeness to Aurelius his father was become, in consequence, more striking than ever, and he had one source of genuine interest in the great literary guest of the occasion, in that the latter was the fortunate possessor of a monopoly for the exhibition of wild beasts and gladiatorial shows in the province of Carthage, where he resided. Still, after all, complaisance to the perhaps somewhat crude tastes of the emperor's son, It was felt that with a guest like Apuleius, whom they had come prepared to entertain as veritable connoisseurs, the conversation should be learned and superior, and the host at last deftly led his company round to literature, by way of bindings. Elegant rolls of manuscript from his fine library of ancient Greek books passed from hand to hand about the table. It was a sign for the visitors themselves to draw their own choicest literary curiosities from their bags, as their contribution to the banquet. And one of them, a famous reader, choosing his lucky moment, delivered in tenor voice the piece which follows, with a preliminary query as to whether it could indeed be the composition of Lucian of Samosata, understood to be the great mocker of that day. "'What sound was that, Socrates?' asked Caiapharon. It came from the beach under the cliff yonder and seemed a long way off, and how melodious it was. Was it a bird, I wonder? I thought all seabirds were songless. Aye, a sea bird answered Socrates, a bird called the Halcyon, and has a note full of plaining and tears. There is an old story people tell of it. It was a mortal woman once, daughter of Aeolus, god of the winds cx the son of the morning star wedded her in her early maidenhood the son was not less fair than the father and when it came to pass that he died the crying of the girl as she lamented his sweet usage was just that and some while after as heaven willed she was changed into a bird floating now on birds wings over the sea she seeks her lost cx there since she was not able to find him after long wandering over the land that then is the halcyon the kingfisher said caepharon i never heard a bird like it before it has truly a plaintive note what kind of bird is it socrates not a large bird though she has received large honour from the gods on account of her singular conjugal affection for whensoever she makes her nest a law of nature brings round what is called halcyon's weather days distinguishable among all others for their serenity though they come sometimes amid the storms of winter, days like to-day. See how transparent is the sky above us and how motionless the sea, like a smooth mirror. True, a halcyon day indeed, and yesterday was the same. But tell me, Socrates, what is one to think of those stories which have been told from the beginning of birds changed into mortals and mortals into birds? To me, nothing seems more incredible." Dear Caiapheron, said Socrates, methinks we are but half-blind judges of the impossible and the possible. We try the question by the standards of our human faculty, which avails neither for true knowledge, nor for faith, nor vision. Therefore many things seem to us impossible which are really easy, many things unattainable which are within our reach, partly through inexperience, partly through the childishness of our minds. FOR IN TRUTH EVERY MAN, EVEN THE OLDEST OF US, IS LIKE A LITTLE CHILD, SO BRIEF AND BABYISH ARE THE YEARS OF OUR LIFE IN COMPARISON OF ETERNITY. THEN HOW CAN WE, WHO COMPREHEND NOT THE FACULTIES OF GOD'S AND OF THE HEAVENLY HOST, TELL WHETHER aught OF THAT KIND BE POSSIBLE OR NO? WHAT A TEMPEST YOU SAW THREE DAYS AGO! ONE trembles, BUT TO THINK OF THE LIGHTNING, THE THUNDER-CLAPS, THE VIOLENCE OF THE WIND you might have thought the whole world was going to ruin. And then, after a little, came this wonderful serenity of weather, which has continued till today. What do you think the greater and more difficult thing to do, to exchange the disorder of that irresistible whirlwind to a clarity like this, and becalm the whole world again, or refashion the form of a woman into that of a bird? We can teach even little children to do something of that sort, to take wax or clay and mold out of the same material many kinds of form one after another without difficulty and it may be that to the deity whose power is too vast for comparison with ours all processes of that kind are manageable and easy how much wider is the whole circle of heaven than thyself wider than thou canst express among ourselves also how vast the difference we may observe in men's degrees of power To you and me and many another like us many things are impossible which are quite easy to others. For those who are unmusical, to play on the flute, to read or write, for those who have not yet learned, is no easier than to make birds of women or women of birds. From the dumb and lifeless egg nature molds her swarms of winged creatures, aided as some will have it by a divine and secret art in the wide air around us. She takes from the honeycomb a little memberless live thing she brings it wings and feet, brightens and beautifies it with quaint variety of colors, and, lo, the bee in her wisdom making honey worthy of the gods. It follows that we mortals, being altogether of little account, able wholly to discern no great matter, sometimes not even a little one for the most part, at a loss regarding what happens, even with ourselves, may hardly speak with security as to what may be the powers of the immortal gods concerning Kingfisher or Nightingale. Yet the glory of thy mythos, as my fathers bequeathed to me, O tearful songstress, that will I to hand on to my children, and tell it often to my wives, Xanthippe and Myrto, the story of thy pious love to CX, and of thy melodious hymns, and above all of the honour thou hast with the gods. The reader's well-turned periods seemed to stimulate, almost uncontrollably, the eloquent stirrings of the eminent man of letters then present. The impulse to speak masterfully was visible before the recital was well over, in the moving lines about his mouth, by no means designed, as detractors were wont to say, simply to display the beauty of his teeth. One of the company, expert in his humours, made ready to transcribe what he would say, the sort of things of which a collection was then forming. THE FLORIDA, OR FLOWERS, SO TO CALL THEM, HE WAS APT TO LET FALL BY THE WAY. NO IMPROMPTU VENTURES AT RANDOM, BUT RATHER ELABORATE CARVED IVORIES OF SPEECH, DRAWN AT LENGTH OUT OF THE RICH TREASURE HOUSE OF A MEMORY STORED WITH SUCH, AND AS WITH A FINE SAVOR OF OLD MUSK ABOUT THEM. CERTAINLY IN THIS CASE, AS MARIUS THOUGHT, IT WAS WORTH WHILE TO HEAR A CHARMING WRITER SPEAK discussing quite in our modern way the peculiarities of those suburban views especially the sea views of which he was a professed lover he was also every inch a priest of Esculapius, patronal god of carthage there was a piquancy in his rococo very african and as it were perfumed personality though he was well nigh sixty years old a mixture there of the sort of platonic spiritualism which can speak of the soul of man as but a sojourner in the prison of the body a blending of that which such a relish for merely bodily graces as availed to set the fashion in matters of dress deportment accent and the like nay was something also which reminded marius of the vein of coarseness he had found in the golden book all this made the total impression he conveyed a very uncommon one marius did not wonder as he watched him speaking that people freely attributed to him many of the marvellous adventures he had recounted in that famous romance over and above the wildest version of his own actual story—his extraordinary marriage, his religious initiations, his acts of mad generosity, his trial as a sorcerer. But a sign came from the imperial prince that it was time for the company to separate. He was entertaining his immediate neighbors at the table with a trick from the streets, tossing his olives in rapid succession into the air, and catching them as they fell between his lips. His dexterity in this performance made the mirth around him noisy, disturbing the sleep of the furry visitor. The learned party broke up, and Marius withdrew, glad to escape into the open air. The courtesans in their large wigs of false blond hair were lurking for the guests, with groups of curious idlers. A great conflagration was visible in the distance. Was it in Rome, or in one of the villages of the country? Pausing for a few minutes on the terrace to watch it, Marius was for the first time able to converse intimately with Apuleius, and in this moment of confidence the Illuminist himself, with locks so carefully arranged and seeming so full of affectations, almost like one of those light women there, dropped a veil, as it were, and appeared, though still permitting the play of a certain element of theatrical interest in his bizarre tenets, to be ready to explain and defend his position reasonably. For a moment his fantastic foppishness and his pretensions to ideal vision seemed to fall into some intelligible congruity with each other. In truth, it was the platonic idealism as he conceived it, which for him literally animated and gave him so lively an interest in this world of the purely outward aspects of men and things. Did material things, such things as they had around them all evening, really need apology for being there, to interest one at all? Were not all visible objects, the whole material world indeed, according to the consistent testimony of philosophy in many forms, full of souls? Embarrassed perhaps, partly imprisoned, but still eloquent souls? Certainly the contemplative philosophy of Plato with its figurative imagery and epilogue, its manifold aesthetic colouring, its measured eloquence, its music for the outward ear, had been like Plato's old master himself, a two-sided or two-coloured thing. Apuleius was a Platonist, only for him the ideals of Plato were no creatures of logical abstraction, but in the very truth informing souls in every type and variety of sensible things. Those noises in the house all supper time, sounding through the tables and along the walls were they only startings in the old rafters at the impact of the music, and laughter, or rather importunities, of the secondary selves, the true, unseen selves, of the persons, nay of the very things around, essaying to break through their frivolous, merely transitory surfaces, to remind one of abiding essentials beyond them which might have their say, their judgment to give, by and by, when the shifting of the meats and drinks at life's table would be over. And was not this the true significance of the Platonic doctrine, a hierarchy of divine beings associating themselves with particular things and places, for the purpose of mediating between God and man? Man who does but need due attention on his part to become aware of his celestial company, filling the air about him, thick as motes in the sunbeam, for the glance of sympathetic intelligence he casts through it. Two kinds there are of animated beings, he exclaimed gods entirely differing from men in the infinite distance of their abode since one part of them only is seen by our blunted vision those mysterious stars in the eternity of their existence in the perfection of their nature infected by no contact with ourselves and men dwelling on the earth with frivolous and anxious minds with infirm and mortal members with variable fortunes labouring in vain taken altogether and in their whole species perhaps eternal but severally quitting the scene in irresistible succession. What, then? Has nature connected itself together by no bond, allowed itself to be thus crippled and split into the divine and human elements? And you will say to me, if so it be, that man is thus entirely exiled from the immortal gods, that all communication is denied him, that not one of them occasionally visits us as a shepherd is sheep, to whom shall I address my prayers? Whom shall I invoke as the helper of the unfortunate, the protector of the good? Well, there are certain divine powers of a middle nature through whom our aspirations are conveyed to the gods, and theirs to us. Passing between the inhabitants of earth and heaven, they carry from one to the other prayers and bounties, supplication and assistance, being a kind of interpreters. This interval of the air is full of them. Through them all revelations, miracles, magical processes are effected, for specially appointed members of this order have their special provinces, with a ministry according to the disposition of each. They go to and fro without fixed habitation, or dwell in men's houses. Just then a companion's hand laid in the darkness on the shoulder of the speaker carried him away, and the discourse broke off suddenly. Its singular intimations, however, were sufficient to throw back on this strange evening, in all its detail—the dance, the readings, the distant fire—a kind of allegoric expression. Gave it the character of one of those famous platonic figures or apologues, which had then been in fact under discussion. When Marius recalled its circumstances he seemed to hear once more that voice of genuine conviction, pleading, from amidst a scene at best, of elegant frivolity for so boldly mystical a view of man and his position in the world. For a moment—but only for a moment, as he listened—the trees had seemed, as of old, to be growing close against the sky. Yes, the reception of theory, of hypothesis, of beliefs, did depend a great deal on temperament. They were, so to speak, mere equivalents of temperament—a celestial ladder, a ladder from heaven to earth that was the assumption which the experience of apuleius had suggested to him it was what in different forms certain persons in every age had instinctively supposed they would be glad to find their supposition accredited by the authority of a grave philosophy marius however yearning not less than they in that hard world of rome and below its unpeopled sky for the trace of some celestial wing across it must still object that they assumed the thing with too much facility too much of self-complacency and his second thought was that to indulge but for an hour fantasies fantastic visions of that sort only left the actual world more lonely than ever for him certainly and for his solace the little godship for whom the rude countryman an unconscious Platonist, trimmed his twinkling lamp would never slip from the bark of these immemorial olive-trees—no, not even in the wildest moonlight. For himself it was clear he must still hold by what his eyes really saw. Only he had to concede also that the very boldness of such theory bore witness, at least, to a variety of human disposition, and a consequent variety of mental view, which might, who can tell, be correspondent to, be defined by, and define, varieties of facts, of truths, just beyond the veil, regarding the world all alike, had actually before them as their original premise or starting point, a world wider, perhaps, in its possibilities than all possible fancies concerning it. End of chapter 20 Recording by Philip Gould